Father in heaven, we're on earth and we do await a day uh, to see you face to face. You tell us that we see through a glass darkly now, but then face to face we will know you as we're fully known. So I pray that during this time, as uh, the world is still moving along, as we still are living these lives in these broken bodies, and as we are resting upon faith in your word, you would invigorate our hearts with truth, that the, the gospel of truth would win in our minds and hearts and not the gospel of the enemy, which is not good news at all, but is condemning and accusing. That Father, that wants to keep us uh, wallowing uh, in a self-deprecating way that makes us think that we are the ones who do not deserve your love. Of course, we do not deserve it, but Jesus has earned it. And so you love us because you cannot deny yourself. So pray that you would give us uh, encouraged hearts this morning so as we open your word, we would be able to, to, to feed on it and be changed into the image of your son so that we can make a difference here on earth for those who are still lost in darkness. And we pray all of this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, maybe seated. Summit Kids, thank you for enjoying time with us. You are dismissed. Have a good time. We love you very much. And my brothers and sisters, everyone else who's here, take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our series in Identity Matters. Does identity matter? Absolutely. You ask people who do not even know the Bible or know Jesus, they do know through the experience of life that when someone does not know who they are, they have no sense of self, they have no understanding about their value or their worth or their reason for existing, it creates all types of problems. And this is why we have things called mental health in the, in the, in the understanding of the world, but we know that all things lead back to the fact that our identity has been lost and Jesus is recovering it for us and helping us understand who we really are. So you come to the book of 1 Peter and you have the apostle Peter later in his life who, who had to go through the process of understanding who he was in Christ, God changing him and growing him over time, now writing to groups of Christians, churches scattered throughout places of Turkey at the, the outskirts of Rome to try to encourage them in the world that they're living in that was very hostile to them. And helping them see first and foremost in his letter that knowing who you are, who God is, who you are, what he's given you, is paramount to being able to function in a world that has much suffering. Holy suffering is what we're going to be talking about today. And that kind of sounds weird. It's like, oh, we're going to focus on suffering. Oh, boy, joy. Holy suffering? Like already just hearing that makes us bristle. Something is like, I, I, okay, what, what is going on here? Well, let, let me, let's get some context. We have been so far talking about different types of people, citizens, and how they are to respond in a holy way to the suffering that would come from tyrannical government. Slaves who are Christians in, in their holy conduct and manner of life towards their masters, even the harsh ones when they suffer from their masters as servants. And then wives, Christian wives how they are to uh, respond to a husband that would not obey the word and how to be a holy wife that could win them over to the Lord and then husbands and now we're going to see he's going to talk to all of us. If you look down at verse 8, he's going to say finally all of you. So now he turns his attention to all Christians and he's going to highlight 
what it means to suffer in a holy way. So let's talk about it. What in the world is holy suffering? And in order to understand this, go ahead and look at our very last verse of today. Go down to verse 17 and read it, and you'll find the definition of holy suffering. Verse 17 says this, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Holy suffering is simply this, suffering for doing the right thing. All of us are well acquainted with unholy suffering or worldly suffering. When we suffer because of our decisions, when we suffer for doing the wrong thing, that would be what human beings all know very well. Not talking about suffering as a result of just circumstances we cannot control, but suffering that comes as a result of doing evil in our life. And Peter's going to start this pattern of talking about this through the rest of the book, especially through chapter 4. I'm going to see Jesus as the example, but he's really going to start right here in the meat of 1 Peter to help us understand what he's trying to do. These Christians were suffering back in this day, but the reason they were suffering is because of their devotion to Christ. And so he writes to say, listen, if there's anything worth suffering for, it's this. Stay true in it. Keep going. So he even equips them with like, okay, if you're in this situation, here's what this means. Here's how to keep yourself a good conscience so that your suffering is not a result of your own evil, but the result of others' evil. And it is to the glory of God and to your benefit and a blessing for you if you are to suffer for things that you do not deserve, for doing the right thing. That's what we're going to look at today. Holy suffering. But let's Instead of talking about it like just matter-of-fact, informationally, let's admit something. This is impossible. Absolutely impossible. There's not a single one of us that wakes up every morning and says, you know what, I want to hurt and feel pain and suffer. And if someone does desire that, something's wrong with them. No, none of us are chased. It is, is instinctual. It, it, our bodies, even the makeup of our body, runs from that. And teaches us to fear things that would be painful and does everything it can to get us away from things that would be painful. Suffering. No one wants it. So how in the world then can we be the type of people who would actually be able to suffer in a type of way that transcends what anyone who calls themselves human on the face of the planet of the earth could ever do? It's because we need something outside of ourselves to be able to endure this type of hostility from the world in a way that would leave us with a good and clean conscience, in a way that would mimic Jesus Christ. We need the Holy Spirit inside of us to be able to give us the, the ability to be even able to suffer this way as we're going to see. So before we jump into it, turn back to chapter 1 with me. I want to remind us of some things because we're going to talk a lot about doing and not doing and it would be very good for Christians who herald the gospel of grace to remind themselves of, of what the doing and the obedience as a Christian is, is for. And not get it confused with what our hearts are naturally going to want to do. Not get it confused with what it's not for. The type of doing good we're going to talk about today is not for salvation. Peter knew this, so he starts out chapter 1, remember, very uh, uh, in the inspiration of the scripture, wisely talking to people who were suffering, 
not to give any confusion that their salvation was based on their efforts, but their salvation was a work of God alone on their behalf. Remember, Peter encouraged them with this right at the beginning. One, that they were elect exiles. They were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. But he says this in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exclamation. Blessed be him. Why? According to his great mercy. Not little mercy. Great mercy. Which means God giving us. Not God holding back from us what we do not deserve. According to his great mercy. Who? He. He has caused us. He has caused you. He has worked within you something. He has done something for you that you could not do. And what is that? He has caused us to be born again. To be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse four, to what? Which means if you are saved, you're born again, you believe in Jesus because of the great mercy of God, you have been born again, you're a new creation, you're saved, but you're being saved to something. There's something awaiting you. That's also not based on your merit or your own doing to an inheritance, which by the way, do you work for an inheritance? Is an inheritance something that you work for? No, something that you inherit because of who you are. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by whose power? God's power are being guarded. Who's being guarded? You are being guarded, and your salvation and your inheritance being guarded, but here's where you come in. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith? The, the only responsibility which isn't a work, faith is not a work. God does not look down and say, that's a work you must do. The only thing that we participate in this is our trust and belief that God is who he said he is. Our faith all of this is happening through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Can I get an amen with that? Amen. amen. All on God, all from him, he just says faith, by faith. It won't be through anything else. You won't be able to get this through anything else but faith in my son Jesus Christ. But let me remind you of what verse 6 says in chapter 1. In this you rejoice, right? We amen this. Though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as we begin to talk about holy suffering, and Peter is going to talk to all of us, finally, all of you, be prepared and ready to suffer in a holy way, we remember, though, that God is the one who has already done a work within us. He has made us, and he has, he has given us our identity, and he holds us, he guards us, and the only thing that we hold on to is our faith in him. We don't let any circumstance cause us to throw it away. And if a circumstance can cause you to throw your faith away, then you would be part of the thorny or rocky soil that Jesus warned about that's not able to endure the cares and the tribulations of life. Those things put you through the test and you throw Jesus away and you give in to the world and you prove that your faith is not genuine. 
But if you can pass the test of tribulation and the cares of the world, it gives you a proof right now that your faith is genuine. Beautiful thing. So then when trials start coming our way, we're less like, oh, why is this happening to me? And more like, oh, I get it. I, I, you told me about this. I, I'm, I'm wise to this. You've matured me enough. So as your child, I understand time on earth is going to involve suffering, which is unavoidable, whether Christian or not. The, the question is, what type of suffering do you want to have? Do you want to have suffering that is worth it? Or suffering that is nothing but suffering and that has nothing to yield at the end of it other than you reaped what you sowed. Which suffering do you want? I, I would love to have a suffering that accomplishes something, that brings glory to God, that's worth it. So here's what we're gonna look at today. What does holy suffering require then? Because Peter knows he needs to equip us with a way of thinking and things we need to keep on guard for. In the passage, chapter three here, verses eight through 17, he knows we need to be equipped to know how to suffer in a, in a way that's holy. And so he's gonna equip us here. What does holy suffering require then? First thing is this, verse eight of chapter three, a settled heart. Holy suffering requires first a settled heart. And verse eight is very clear because he starts with verse eight and it helps the rest of what he's going to say. Let me read this. Peter says, finally, all of you, all of us have a few things. Have a settled heart. Be settled in your heart about a few things. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. But before we can even go in to say, I'm ready to suffer holy, he knows that he must encourage us and exhort us with what must already be present in our heart to be able to step into a holy suffering experience when it comes to you. And if these things are not settled in your heart, you will not suffer in this type of way, to the glory of God, in a way that could be, say, is holy and miraculous, in a way that brings people to Jesus, in a way, as we're gonna see, that causes people to wanna know what's different about you. So, so let's, let's qualify it. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Now look at verse nine. I'm gonna, it's kind of the next point, but we need to see verse nine before I can help you understand this. Finally, all of you have these things in the verse nine. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So then if you look at verse nine, you say, how in the world could I bless when, pe when people are hurting me, when they're cursing at me and they're, they hate me and they're, they're being vitriolic towards me and then my response is blessing, not the same as theirs, but blessing? How in the world could I do that? Well, if that comes to you, you have to have a settled heart. Verse eight has to already be true about you. This already has to be settled in your heart which means you are being sanctified, you're walking daily with your Lord, that you understand your mission and your calling and you're ready for these moments to act in the way that Jesus did and would have if he were here right now and that same thing happened to him. So let's now look at verse eight and understand it. He says, finally, all of you, he doesn't say do these things, he says have these things. And the first thing he says this is unity of mind, which simply means same mindset, which, which would mean, hey, here's a church, 
everything we've been talking about in First Peter, we're all on the same page about. We get, we understand, doesn't mean we agree on absolutely everything because there should be nuance amongst the body. There's going to be, so, but we're able to have unity despite difference. That's why it's cool and special. The world says you better think, act, talk, look like me, or you're not a part of me. That's not how the, world, the church does it. Unity of mind, but it means the same mindset. We all are on the same understanding about the heart and the disposition of Christ. All of you have this unity of mind. We're on the same page about what Peter's talking about and suffering and our part and our identity. Then he says this, sympathy. He wants you to have, he wants you to have sympathy that when, when you look out amongst your brothers and sisters and you see the different types of suffering people are going through, your first reaction is one where you are, you're, you're kind of hurting with them. You, you care about that and you notice it and it causes a, an emotion inside of you that, that, that's, that's towards the realm of almost wanting to cry when you think about what your brother and sister is going through. You, you care, basically, about what they're going through. You know, sometimes we can, instead of having sympathy, then what could we have? Just a harsh gruff spirit and, and, and not really care about what our brothers and sisters are going through. Which leads him to say this, brotherly love. It, it's the Philadelphia type of love that says you're a family. The same way you love each other, you lo- like a family. If you go back to chapter two, he already addressed this, wanting us to have brotherly love for each other. Now he's reiterating it here, that you would look out among one another and say, this is my family. You know, Jesus even said when, when referring to his blood family that he didn't have a mother didn't have a brother but that is his his family was here and he was he was wasn't talking bad about his blood family but he was trying to make the overwhelming point that when you are a believer you are closer to those who have the spirit inside of each other than those who have the same blood as you spirit makes you closer than blood the world treats the blood unconditionally but the church treats those with the spirit unconditionally. We have, a, we have a family love for each other because of this. Then he says this, a tender heart. It even builds upon this idea of sympathy, but your heart is tender and kind towards one another. Do you, this is something, this is an emotion that you, you know it when you experience it from one another. Right, so, so each one of us should be like, man, when I, what my interaction with one another is I, I just feel such a tenderness. I don't feel judgment. I don't feel condemned. I don't feel like, like I have to be a certain type of person in order for them to love me. My brothers and sisters around me, it's like they get me and they love me and they're patient with me and they're tender towards me, even my struggles and my mess ups and all of these things. All of us are to have this. And then finally he says this, a humble mind, which would be a, a lowly mind, which would be a, a mind that doesn't think too highly of yourself, that doesn't, doesn't uh, put you at the center of everything. You're, the mind, the actual inner thoughts of each of us, we have a humble mind, which means we have a mind where, man, I'm last, everyone else is first. God first, then everyone else, and then me. I don't feel like I have everything figured out. I find myself praying more for God's help, and I need to lean on my brothers and sisters more than I, than I could ever even obtain, and I need that because I just need help. And it's not self-deprecating, but it's one that sees ourselves accurately as the scripture says, poor, blind, and naked. Came into the world naked and will leave the world naked. We will take nothing with us. We and our flesh, the flesh is no help at all. We're told in the gospels. 
We have a humble mind which we think accurately about ourselves, which means you don't, if you're self-deprecating, you're saying I'm worthless, God doesn't love me, that's unbelief, that's not accurate. If you're thinking like, man, I got this figured out, I'm good to go, I can't wait to stand before Jesus, he's going to give me a high five and an applaud, say, man, if everyone else was like you. Now, we don't, probably don't ever think that. If you do think that, then, okay, wake up. But too often we feel that way, and that just kind of is a natural way about our inner person. We cannot, we must have a humble mind, each and every one of us. Now think about this. Think about if that's something that we have already. That's already part of our disposition. Think about how verse 9 is different when, when, when it's someone who has these things comes across the world that's being evil and reviling and horrible towards them. That person has the disposition and the settled heart that's able to respond in the way that's holy. You see this? So holy suffering first requires the verse 8, settled heart. And if you're convicted now, like, man, this is not what I have. You don't wait till the suffering comes and then try to deal with it. God wants to change you now, and he wants to be working, and he wants your heart tender and humble and sympathetic now so that he can use you in these situations. And so you have time with the Lord dealing with these things, saying, like, God, I need your help in this. I, I have not been tender. You know what? I don't have a humble mind. You know what? I, I, I don't think I have unity with my brothers and sisters. I, I think I look down on them. You know, I, I actually don't see these people as family. I, I, I would rather hang out with 10 other people who don't, who aren't a part of this family that I barely know than this family here. God, you gotta change my heart. I want to love them like family. Help me. Secondly, holy suffering requires this in verse nine, answering the call. Verse nine says this, do not repay evil for evil. Peter is undoubtedly uh, thinking about his Savior and the words that his Savior left with them. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And then he says this, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Our calling is what? That's the question here. For to this, and if you highlight the word this, the question you should be asking is what is Peter saying is this? What is it that we're called to? Is it at the end here? For to this you were called, comma, that you may obtain a blessing. Are we called to obtain a blessing? Or is the this referring to what he has just said? For to this you were called, that you would suffer holy, that you would not repay evil for evil. I want, you to, I want you to see it as this, that when he says, for this you were called, you were called to answer the, the cross that Jesus carried. You were called to suffer in this way if it be God's will. If you read through 1 Peter, you'll see where multiple times this word calling is linked with this idea of holy suffering. If you call yourself a Christian, which means I choose to follow Jesus, you're picking up your cross daily and you're following, you're stepping where he stepped, where he would step, and you're staying on the same path he would, and you're not deviating left or right. And that would always require holy suffering. You've been called to this, predestined to be conformed to the image of a son here on earth. People need to see you suffer and then act like Jesus would so it changes them because all they see is everyone else acting the way everyone else would act. Amen. Holy suffering also requires this, living the good life, verses 10 through 13. So Paul, Peter now is going to shift and he's going to quote Psalm 34. He's going to go further down uh, uh, answering this. 
verses 10 through 13, he says this, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Okay, we gotta unpack this. Bear with me. Look at verse uh, nine again. At the end of verse nine, he says, do not do this, but do this. Don't repay people for evil. And then it's comma, this is the will of the Lord to suffer this way, that you may obtain a blessing. We got what, what, what in the world does that mean? There's debate about this. Is he referring to the blessing or the blessing is this word for inheritance? Is he referring about the inheritance he's been talking about this whole time? There's good reason to believe that. Is he talking about something else? What, what is this blessing? Now, we already know that you don't do these things in order to get blessing from God the salvation type of blessing. So if it means that, there's a contradiction here. So it doesn't mean that you're working to obtain whatever this blessing is. Can't be, because he's already told us you don't work for it. You have the inheritance, you have a blessing. I want us to see it this way. When I study it and I look at it in the context, it seems like he's saying that you may obtain a blessing, comma, and then he helps us understand what that blessing looks like in verses 10 through 13. Now, imagine this. He's saying, I want you to respond to people in this type of gentle, tender way that you may obtain a blessing. And then I'm remind you of what Psalm 34 says. Here's the blessing that you can get not only in heaven, but here and now for living this type of life. Now we read it again. Whoever desires to love life, anyone here desire to love life and see good days? Anyone want their days to be good? You wanna see good days? The good day and the good life ultimately is coming, but what about the here and now? I believe this is talking about the here and now as well. So he says this, let him keep his tongue from evil. You go back to the Proverbs and you learn about the tongue and the tongue will do things like this for you. Spread fire or calm things down. A soft answer turns away wrath. You're obtaining the blessing of doing good in that moment. Someone's coming to you with wrath. You respond with wrath. You throw oil on fire. Guess what? That fire gets bigger, doesn't it? But you come and you, 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 you kind of snuff out the fire with a gentleness and a softness, this type of disposition, settled heart that he's talking about. Then you start to get the blessing of seeing good days and good life. You see where we're going with this? Whoever desires to love life, see good days, raised hands, all of us, yes, then these things must be present here and now in your heart. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. What type of, what type of life does someone who speaks evil and deceives people, what type of fruit and experience of life do they get if they live that way? Is it a peaceable one? Is it one where they don't have a lot of enemies? How about this? Let him turn, repent. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Repent from doing evil and instead do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If you think earlier, think about being a holy citizen and you have a government that's, that's oppressive, but yet 
the citizens who are the most obedient and submissive and kind and helpful and easy to govern are the Christians. They're going to be the ones in a better situation to not suffer for it and obtain the blessing of a peaceable life because of their response to whatever it is they're experiencing. He says this, let them seek peace and pursue it, implying that we don't always seek peace. Or maybe we do want peace, but we never seek it or pursue it. There's so many other things we'd rather have. And the things that we're fighting for require fighting. James says, why do you war and fight? And where do these wars and arguments and angry outbursts come from among you? Is it not from your selfish passions that are at war within you? But for someone who loves peace, wants it, seeks it, and actually puts effort into pursuing it, like the scripture says, live at peace with all as much as depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Your, your, your efforts as a Christian should be always towards trying to make peace with others and not stoke fires of anger and bitterness and wrath and responding with, with vitriol like the world does. They need to see Jesus. And then he says this in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The blessing of the, God's eyes are on you. He sees you. And his ears are open to their prayer, which reminds you about the husbands who don't live with their wives in an understanding way. Your prayers will be hindered because you're living evil. Shouldn't expect God to hear you and listen and his ears be open and his eyes be on you if you're treating your wife horrible. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We have a very practical uh, verse here that Peter brings up from the Old Testament. So there's, there's a blessing that comes from living the good life. And the good life basically is this, living in a selfless way like Jesus would. WWJ Day, we need to bring that back. What would Jesus do? Living in that way brings a blessing here and now. How do you know that, Jasper? Because you're talking to us about holy suffering, so you're telling we gotta suffer, uh, suffer in a holy way, but now you're saying that if we live good, we won't experience suffering? Track with Peter here. Look at verse 13. This is why he says verse 13 right after this. So he says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? That's a rhetorical question. What does it feel like the natural answer is to verse 13? Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? What's the natural answer to that? What do you think? No one. Who, who, who on planet Earth, for the most part, is lining up to punish people for doing good and living this way. Even amongst the world, it would be the exception to the norm. Go and read through all of Scripture, God's people who live this way in a pagan society. God's people always got the attention of the pagans, and the pagans couldn't help but to love these people. Just look at Nebuchadnezzar's relationship with Daniel. Look at everyone's relationship with Joseph, who he, he interacted with. All of them displaying Jesus-like life, and it's, it's being light to the world. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? This is very important Be, because he's about to tell us that our suffering doesn't have, to, it doesn't have to fall on us. And so as much as depends on us, we don't seek suffering. We should live in the type of way that, that never asks for suffering or seeks it or creates it so that when the suffering comes on you and you don't deserve it, you know it's of God and you don't have to question whether or not you brought it on yourself. You see this? Holy suffering. You want to experience holy suffering? You've got to have a settled heart. You've got to be answering the call to like, I'm going to live like Jesus lived and bless and love and not curse when I am. Because that's what he did for me. I'm going to do that for others. 
And you have to be living the good life. I wanna, I wanna see good days. I wanna love life, see good days. So I'm, I'm gonna keep my tongue from speaking evil, my lips from speaking deceit. I'm gonna turn away from evil and I'm gonna do good. I'm gonna live like Jesus in the good life here and now in order to experience a good life here and now. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good, right? But also I think that has a sovereign uh, promise in it. I, think it. I think we can also trust that in verse 13, Peter is saying, there is literally no one who can harm you. If you are living for God, living this way, and, and, and your life is in this trajectory, no one can touch you. You are untouchable, and you will not be harmed unless God allows it. How do you know that, Jasper? Because when we come, we're working our way to verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if it be God's will. So keep with me. The next thing holy suffering requires is this, gospel readiness. So you got a steady heart, you've answered the call, you're desiring to live the good life, you're, you're walking with the grace and the mercy of the Lord, you're not perfect, but you're, you're on the path of a good life, but also this, now as you go out into the world with this type of disposition and identity, you have gospel readiness on your feet and on your lips and in your mind. You are very much clued into with great Christian maturity because you've chewed on God's words and his will, you understand what he's doing, that you are ready to share the gospel with people because you know people are looking at you and they see you and they're looking for the hope that is in you. Look what he says here. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer, do you see, do you see the connection? You see where Peter's saying this? Who's there to harm you? Look, if you're living the good life, you shouldn't expect someone's just out to get you for the most part, but even if you should. You see where God's will is starting to come in? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Jesus said that, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set him aside. He has a special place in your heart. He has the place in your heart. And you're always ready, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who ask you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, you see the perspective here that Christians have? When it comes to suffering holy, I'm not seeking it, living the good life. I'm not asking for it. I'm actually trying to live at peace with everyone. But I also know I live in the world where the, where the devil is the prince of the power of the air and he hates God's people and he's gonna try to breathe out threats against us all the time. And maybe I'm now in a situation where I'm doing nothing but loving those around me and now they're coming at me in an in a angry, volatile way. And you respond like this. But then they see something in you. They can't, they can't take it. They see something in you that's different. You're not like them. You refuse to respond like them. Actually, you bless them and you love them and you pray for them. And they just see that you're not a threat to them. They cannot understand why in the world you will not retaliate. And they come and they ask you, what's so different about, what is this hope that's in you? Peter says, be ready. Be prepared to always give a reason for the hope that is in you when you're asked about it. But he says this, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, still here, knowing that if you're in the will of the Lord, the tone and the attitude, you're always loving and kind and respectful to people. Paul says in Colossians, 
to walk in wisdom toward the outsiders, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer every man, which means if you are kind and gentle and respectful, you never have to feel bad like somehow you're operating the wrong way. This is why he says what he says next in verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You see where Peter's getting at here? This word behavior, behavior not linked to your salvation, but it's linked to you making a difference on planet earth. It's linked to the salvation of others. That God has left you here. Jesus is gone and he's gonna come back and get you and he's left you here now. He's the first fruits as those who would grow throughout all of the time of the world and these little lights would show up, showing and pointing the world the way. But the moment you snuff your your light out in your life is the moment people stop seeing that this is true. So your motivation to suffer holy is one, first the glory of God, but the salvation of others. Man, that's, that's a very purposeful type of suffering that you can have. And it doesn't have to be the other way. Peter's gonna say later in his book as we kept going, let none of you suffer for doing evil. But if we should suffer, let us suffer for doing good. He says they're a clean conscience. Holy suffering requires these things. You wanna have a clean conscience that what you're going through isn't your own doing and a clean conscience that it's, that it's actually of the will of the Father, then these things have to be present in your life. And then he says this, verse 17, we're concluding it. Holy suffering requires God's will, which means if you're going to suffer in a holy way, God is the one who's bringing it into your life and he's willing it. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I think sometimes Christians, I, I think we, we're always trying to find the balance to certain things, doctrines and understandings and teachings. And, and, and there could be maybe some Christians who think like, you know what, if we're following Jesus, we should never have to suffer. suffer. Health, wealth, prosperity, it's not the gospel. It's, it's destroying the witness of the world, right? Because now people are trying to get people to come to Jesus because then their life will be devoid of suffering. That's the promise, that's not the gospel, but, but then there's this, this, this other side of the pendulum that's, hey, I'm just, if you come to Jesus, you're just, life's gonna, it's gonna, you're gonna suffer, it's gonna be horrible, and you should expect that it all turns everywhere, life's going to be horrible for you. You, you know, the Bible doesn't teach that. The collection of scripture is that there's a very, you reap what you sow. The Proverbs, the, the good life here is Christians are, God is wanting Christians to pursue peace, to, to even pray for their government so that it could go well with them in the land. And the, the peace can be moderately experienced here because of the good behavior. So if we all have unity of mind and if we all have a clean conscience that we're living the good life and good behavior with tenderness and we're not guilty of sin and reviling and we're living like Jesus, when the suffering comes, we don't have to think it's something strange, which is what we should see this as. And that, okay, this is part of God's will. I don't have to think something strange is happening to me, Peter says at the end of chapter four. I understand that God calls his people to suffer. And when he does, there's a great grand purpose behind it. And so you've heard us mention 
we can kind of see as a church, all of us, open our eyes, something's brewing in the world. The world continues to wax worse and worse and worse. And even in our culture here that, for the most part, has experienced such kindness towards Christianity, now you can feel the pressures and the evils of the world, tribulation pressing in on you. As we are wise to that and we see it coming, we don't jump out and say, I'm going to take this and make this happen in my life. We prepare our hearts and we are ready to go, for, go through it. If it be God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil with a clean conscience to the glory of God and for the salvation of others. May God make us, Summit Church, a church that would have this type of unity of mind prepared, if it be God's will, to suffer in a holy way. And we would see those people who are lost in darkness come to the Lord. Do you want that? I want that. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, thank you for your kindness, thank you for the great mercy you've poured out on us. Simply put, help us to give this to those around us, to those at our work, to our family members still lost in darkness, to everyone you bring us in contact. We need you to be working in our heart, to be able to respond in a holy way, to show others Jesus. We need you. So I pray that you'd be kind and patient with us, that you would remind us that, that grace is greater than our sins. Remind us that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is a propitiation for our sins, that we, would, we are forgiven 70 times seven. We would make it right and we would continue on the path of serving you and loving one another. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.